the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Portions of our program today are brought to you by Liberty Coin and Currency. And today on the program and through the remainder of this week, we'll be giving away tickets to the Oregon State Fair. So if you'd like to win a family four-pack of Day passes to the Oregon State Fair. This is the place to be, and we'll be giving those away in the next segment of today's program. Today we're going to talk with Lauren Green McAfee. She's the co-author of Only One Life, How a Woman's Every Day Shapes an Eternal Legacy. And in the 5 o'clock hour, we'll talk with Joan Lippis. She's in town. She lives in Jerusalem full-time, uh, but we still consider Portland her uh, her home away from home. She's with Novea Ministry. She's the founder and director. And we're going to talk with her about uh, several things that the Lord has put on her heart with regard to the church. So she'll be joining us in the 5 o'clock hour. So stick around for that. Taking a look at some of the developing news News stories of the day. President Trump slammed haters in the media after the publishers of the New York Times called the president's rhetoric divisive and increasingly dangerous. And he tweeted on Sunday that he would be willing to shut down the government if Democrats didn't support immigration measures such as funding for his border wall. A Northern California wildfire has now left six people dead. That number may have increased, but has started slowing down after days of growth, according to authorities. And the trial of former Trump campaign manager Paul Manafort is expected to begin on Tuesday, it could give a glimpse into special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation. Vice President Mike Pence is touting the Trump administration's economic accomplishments and predicts Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh will be confirmed in the fall. Well, the president ripped haters in the dying newspaper industry on Sunday after publishers of the New York Times criticized his rhetoric. In a series of tweets, the president complained that the media had been driven insane by their Trump derangement syndrome. Ninety percent of media coverage of my administration is negative, despite the tremendously positive results we are achieving. It's no surprise that confidence in the media is at an all time low, he wrote. The president posted the tweets a few hours after the New York Times publisher A.G. Sulzberger. Uh, detailed a Ju- uh, July 20th meeting between himself and the president. He said the president's aides had initially requested the meeting not to be made public, but added he decided to comment after Trump discussed it in another tweet earlier on Sunday. Well, Salzberger said he told Trump uh, that while the uh, phrase fake news is untrue and harmful, I am far more concerned about his labeling journalists the enemy of the people. Trump's labels, he said, were fueling the rise of threats against journalists. And the president to Democrats, border walls or else. The president said on Sunday that he would be willing to shut down the federal government if the Democrats do not agree to Republican demands about funding for a wall along the U.S.-Mexico border. He wrote on Twitter that border security includes the wall, must get rid 
rid of lottery, catch and release, etc., and finally go to a system of immigration based on merit. We need great people coming into our country, end quote. Well, the White House has been embroiled in controversy over the ongoing efforts to reunite families separated at the border who were attempting to enter the United States illegally. During his most recent weekly address, he cited the 9-11 terrorist attacks to justify strong enforcement of immigration laws and the continued necessity of immigration customs and enforcement, or ICE, the agency, which has come under fire from Democrats in recent months. I should say some Democrats. A deadly Northern California fire has now left six people dead but has slowed down, giving authorities new hope. The North Carolina Car Wildfire, which has grown to just under 90,000 acres since exploding on Thursday, has taken six lives, including two firefighters, a woman and her two great-grandchildren, ages four and five. In addition, seven missing person reports remain outstanding, according to the Shasta County Sheriff's Office. Still in Redding, officials uh, stuck a, uh, struck a hopeful note for the first time in days. We're feeling a lot more optimistic today, they said, as we're starting to gain some ground rather than being in a defensive mode on this fire all the time. Brett Guva, the California Department of Forestry and Fire Protection's incident commander. And the trial of President Donald Trump's one-time campaign chairman, Paul Manafort, is expected to begin tomorrow and will focus on his uh, business dealings and lifestyle, not Russian collusion allegations. But it will give a glimpse into special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation. Manafort's financial crimes trial, the first arising from Mueller's investigation, will center on his Ukrainian consulting work and only briefly touch on his involvement with the presidential campaign. Jury selection begins on Tuesday in Alexandria, Virginia. The trial will give the public its most detailed glimpse of evidence Mueller's team has spent the year accumulating. It will feature testimony about the business dealings and foreign ties of a defendant Trump entrusted to run his campaign during a critical stretch in 2016, including during the Republican convention. The vice president uh, touted the Trump administration's economic progress rather and slammed reporters who forego decorum at the White House in a wide ranging interview on uh, with Maria Bartiromo on Sunday morning futures. The reality is, the vice president said, in the last two administrations, the economy grew by less than two percent. And in the first 18 months of this administration, we were a little shy of three percentage points. Uh, percent last year. We're on track to be at 3% or better this year. The dramatic increase in business investment and exports are a testament to the policies of the Trump administration, the vice president said. On Friday, the Commerce Department released a long-awaited estimate showing that the gross domestic product grew by 4.1% in the second quarter of 2018, marking the fastest economic expansion in nearly four years. In addition, despite uh, uh, extreme division on Capitol Hill, the vice president predicted that Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh will be confirmed soon. We remain confident that before the fall is out, that Judge Kavanaugh will be Justice Brett Kavanaugh. And uh, by the way, um, Justice, um, oh, what's her name? Who's uh, 86 said that she plans on serving for another Uh, Five years. I can't even think of her name. Anyway, on this day in 2013, U.S. Army uh, uh, Bradley Manning was acquitted of aiding the uh, uh, the enemy, the most serious charge he faced, but is convicted of espionage, theft and other charges at Fort Meade, Maryland, more than three years after he spilled secrets to WikiLeaks. 
on this day in 2013. The former intelligence analyst, now known as Chelsea Manning, would be later sentenced to up to 35 years in prison. The sentence was commuted by President Barack Obama in his final days in office. And on this day in 1975, former Teamster Union President Jimmy Hoffa disappears in suburban Detroit. Although presumed dead, his remains have never been found. And on this day in 1956, the day the year I was born, rather, President Dwight D. Eisenhower signed a measure making In God We Trust the national motto, replacing E Pluribus Unum, which of course means out of many, one. Well, as I mentioned, the president said on Sunday that he would be willing to shut down the federal government if the Democrats don't agree to the Republican demands about funding for a wall along the U.S.-Mexico border. Uh, One of the critical lessons of 9-11 is that immigration enforcement saves lives, he said in uh, his address. Um, We uh, must enforce the rules against visa fraud, illegal overstay, illegal entry and other immigration violations and crimes and crimes they are. Believe me, crimes they are. So says the secretary of state addressing these issues during a recent um, address. Senator John Cornyn, uh, who is the majority whip, told the Washington Examiner that Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer was once ready to offer $25 billion in border security funding in exchange for a pathway to citizenship for DREAMers. However, Schumer has since withdrawn that offer, which at the time was rejected by Republicans and the president who wanted additional immigration reforms. The battle lines now having been drawn. 15 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Just a reminder, later this hour, we'll talk with Lauren Green McAfee. She's the co-author, along with her mother. The name Green might be familiar. They're the Hobby Lobby family. Anyway, the book is titled Only One Life, How a Woman's Every Day Shapes an Eternal Legacy. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 20 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Later this hour, we'll talk with Lauren Green McAfee, co-author of Only One Life, How a Woman's Every Day Shapes an Eternal Legacy. But before we get to um, a continuation of some of the news, we want to give away our first family four-pack of day passes to the Oregon State Fair. Caller number four, and we'll be giving these away throughout the week. The number to call, 503-786-9390. That's 503-786-9390. Again, we have a uh, family four-pack of uh, day passes to the Oregon State Fair. By the way, Wednesday the 29th is Faith and Family Night at the Oregon State Fair. Um, day passes include general admission, I should say um, August the 29th, um, general admission seating at the Skillet concert that night. General admission seating is first come, first serve. Uh, these will, of course, uh, cover you for any day, but just want to let you know the 29th of August is uh, Faith and Family Night. Caller number 4, 503-786-9390. Well, Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh, uh, broke a political firewall this afternoon by meeting with West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin, the first Democrat to sit down with President Trump's pick for the high court. Uh, the Manchin meeting could set the stage for other swing vote Democrats to talk with Kavanaugh or even support him, despite uh, fierce pressure from the party leaders and activists not to do so. Manchin said earlier this month that Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer can, well, I won't say what he said Chuck Schumer can do, but if he says if he tries to pressure the West Virginia Democrat to oppose Kavanaugh, he is facing a tough reelection battle in a state that went for Trump 
uh, by double digits in 2016. Well, Manchin's office released photographs of Kavanaugh talking and smiling with the senator late today. The uh, senator has said he's interested in Kavanaugh's views on the Affordable Care Act and its protections for people with pre-existing conditions. He's also asked his constituents to send him questions for that meeting. After Manchin said he would talk with Kavanaugh, another red state Democrat, Senator Joe Donnelly out of Indiana, last week announced that he also would meet with Kavanaugh. The sit-down is scheduled for the 15th of next month. Manchin was one of three Democrats who voted to confirm Trump's first Supreme Court nominee, Neil Gorsuch. Donnelly and Senator Heidi Heitkamp of North Dakota were the others. All three are up for re-election in states Trump easily won in 2016. Manchin has said he regrets backing Hillary Clinton in 2016 and hinted that he could support President Trump's re-election in 2020. With the absence of Senator John McCain, uh, who is fighting brain cancer, Republicans can't afford to lose a single GOP vote to confirm Kavanaugh if all Democrats vote no. Only a simple majority is needed to confirm uh, the judge after Republicans eliminated the filibuster for Supreme Court nominees last year. And despite his achievements, the president uh, is unpresidential and that will matter to voters. So says Jay Cost. Uh, pointing out that by most accounts, there is an electoral wave building in favor of Democratic, uh, the Democratic Party. Democrats are in good shape to win the, the necessary 23 seats to take control of the House of Representatives, nab several governorships, and collect a multitude of state legislative seats. The Senate, by virtue of this year's map that favors Republicans, should remain in GOP hands, but all in all, a wave seems to be looming. Well, granted, the out party usually uh, does well in the midterm elections, such as the one scheduled for November, but this is not always a guarantee. Ronald Reagan, Bill Clinton, Barack Obama suffered routes in 82, 94, and 2010, respectively. But John F. Kennedy, Jimmy Carter, George W. Bush did not in 62, 78, and 2002. If we look only at the macro conditions of the country, we might think that the Republicans are in reasonable good shape, or reasonably good shape. The United States is not bogged down in any major wars abroad. At home, we have a reasonably strong economy, bolstered by the most recently reported growth rate of 4.1%, and the incumbent party has not passed any legislation that's met with the widespread disapproval of the voters. That should put the GOP in 2018 in better shape than it was in 82, or that Democrats were in in 94 or 2010. The predicament for today's Republicans is not the agenda or the State of the Union. The predicament is the President himself, according to Mr. Cost. Uh, Trump is not uh, currently facing a Watergate-level scandal that threatens to bring down his administration. It looked as if that might be be the case in, say, the spring of 2017, when it seemed to his critics as though he may have fired FBI Director James Comey because the Bureau was on the verge of uncovering collusion between the Russians and the Trump campaign. But there seems to have been no collusion, and Special Prosecutor Robert Mueller is now primarily focused on apparently unrelated matters. Maybe Mueller will uh, conclude that Trump obstructed justice, but that uh, is not the issue at the moment. Instead, Trump's uh, challenge is that he seems incapable of acting the way most Americans expect their president to act. Now, you might argue that is one of the benefits for his supporters. It might uh, be an impediment for those who oppose him. Trump was undoubtedly advanced has advanced the conservative agenda, but he has not done so in a presidential manner. And at least Mr. Cost is predicting that could cost uh, him a majority in the House in the upcoming midterm election. By the way, in uh, in a comment during the uh, press conference with the Italian leader the president met with earlier today, 
the president uh, said that he would be willing to meet with Iranian President Hassan Rouhani with no preconditions on the heels of a fiery exchange of threats earlier this month. I would certainly meet with Iran if they wanted to meet. I don't know if they're ready yet, Trump said when asked at a White House press conference about a possible meeting with Rouhani. Well, Trump said he would set no preconditions and that if they wanted to meet, I'll meet any uh, any time they want. Well, the president already has held summits with Russian President Vladimir Putin, North Korea's Kim Jong-un. And while Trump drew bipartisan criticism for his Putin summit, specifically for initially appearing to accept Putin's denial of U.S. election meddling, the president maintained Monday that they had a great meeting and stressed that he's willing to meet with anybody. We'll see if that's the case. Is Secretary of State seemed to indicate that there would have to be some concessions. So we'll see once they've spoken to one another if that the president's uh, comments hold. Well, a committee on last Thursday recommended the Oregon Department of Transportation tolls parts of uh, two major Portland area highways. The recommendations come from a 25 person committee that was created last year to study tolling options. The committee was formed after the Oregon legislature passed a transportation bill that in part directed ODOT to address congestion in Portland in the metro area. The committee's recommending tolling in two places. The first phase would be pilot projects on parts of Interstate 5 and Interstate 205. The second phase would be tolling all lanes of I-205 and I-5 in the metro area. The pilot projects would uh, toll all lanes on Interstate 5 from Northeast Going Street, Alberta Street, to Southwest Multnomah Boulevard and Interstate 205 near or on the Abernathy Bridge. If the pilot programs are determined to be a success, and since it's a new revenue stream, I can't imagine they would deem it, uh, uh, determine that it's anything else. The committee said tolling should broaden to all of I-5 and all of I-205 from the interchange near Tualatin to the state border with Washington. Revenue from the tolls should be used to improve the area's transportation system, the committee said, although who knows what will actually happen. And while many in Portland are skeptical of the effectiveness of tolls, ODOT spokesperson Don Hamilton argued tolls will relieve congestion, uh, at least on the interstate, maybe moving it to other um, surface streets in the city. What we have seen around the country and the world is uh, these tolling options make congestion better, he said. When people take different options to go to work to avoid paying the toll, things ease up for everybody else. You're going to pay something, but you'll get something very valuable in return, a better trip. And although the recommendations provide a visual for what tolling in the Portland metro area may look like, it will still be years until drivers see tolls. So that recommendation has moved forward as expected. Meanwhile, there's an initiative proposed for the 2020 ballot that could slow those efforts to toll Interstate 5 and Interstate 205 in the Portland area. Oregonians could have a chance to vote on whether to approve a proposal to toll interstates through the Portland metro area under an initiative petition filed this last week. Gladstone Planning Commissioner Les Poole and State Representative Mike Neerman, um, the Republican uh, and independent respectively have filed initiative petition nine tolls need voter approval for the 2020 ballot. The initiative would amend the Oregon constitution to require a vote of the people to implement tolls. Poole said he received notice from the secretary of state on Tuesday, authorizing petitioners to begin gathering signatures for that initiative. Regardless of the validity of that concept, the tolling recommendations by ODOT are full of holes. Poole wrote in an email uh, to the pamphlet EO uh, cap, Bureau putting the uh, plan to a vote would hold state transportation officials accountable for addressing issues such as how the revenue uh, from tolling will be used and preventing diversion of traffic into neighborhoods. A policy advisory committee earlier this month, as I mentioned, recommended tolling all lanes of I-5 uh, north 
of uh, going in Alberta and Southwest Multnomah Boulevard and on Abernathy Bridge on Interstate 205. So the uh, people may have an opportunity to answer uh, that tolling plan. Coming up, we'll talk with uh, co-author Lauren Green McAfee. The book, Only One Life, How a Woman's Every Day Shapes an Eternal Legacy. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, you know, there are lots of bronze monuments in American parks and town squares. They stand as silent reminders of the exploits or the achievements of generals and inventors and founders. Yet women whose legacies are often forged in quieter, less visible ways are rarely recognized for their impact. Well, Jackie Green, co-founder of the Museum of the Bible and wife of Hobby Lobby president, and Lauren Green McAfee, Hobby Lobby corporate ambassador, want women to know that they are uniquely poised to have an impact on the lives of those around them and challenge them, challenge us to live legacy-minded in our up uh, in our lives. Their book is titled Only One Life: How a Woman's Every Day Shapes an Eternal Legacy. On the pages rather, they reveal the underappreciated truth that Christian women can and do lead, that history is filled with examples of bold, courageous, innovative women who loved God and rose to face the challenges of their times, forging a lasting impact on the course of human events. Uh, the book tells the story of past and present world-changing women and encourage, uh, encourages readers to play a unique and irreplaceable role in God's unfolding stories. In fact, the, um, uh, the book examines 12 characteristics, uh, characteristics of legacy through profiling 36 women who have and are leaving remarkable legacies. Well, my guest is Lauren Green McAfee. She is a speaker, writer, connector, and coffee enthusiast with a heart to engage others in the Bible. And while pursuing her graduate degrees in pastoral counseling and theology, she worked at Museum of the Bible from its founding days until its opening in Washington, D.C. Today, she works at Hobby Lobby as corporate ambassador and is pursuing a Ph.D. in ethics and public policy. She and her husband, Michael, live in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. But today we have her by phone and she's all ours. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us, Lauren. Lauren. Thanks for having me. It's great to be with you. Well, legacy is a big word, and you're right. Most of what I read or uh, hear about the subject uh, pertains primarily, uh, or at least the assumption is that it uh, pertains primarily uh, to men. Why do you think that's the case? I think that some of that has just been cultural. Um, I, I think that it somewhat just depends, too, on our definition of what we think of when we think of legacy. Um, you know, sometimes we think of passing on material wealth or uh, monetary things as well as physical things, but we look at legacy as something that's much more than that. It's passing on values, and for those of us that have a faith, it's passing on that faith and investing in future generations, and that's something that will last much longer than anything that we could pass around that is of uh, material or monetary wealth. And what you've just described is legacy that has eternal impact. Why did you think the topic important to address with today's Christian women, where things are very immediate um, and uh, legacy, you know, looking forward and uh, having a long view is not very common? Yeah, it's so easy to get caught up in seeing what everyone else is doing and comparing ourselves and getting discouraged as well as thinking that uh, these material um, or earthly things are what matters and kind of losing sight of that eternal perspective. And so I think it's always a help to be daily reminding ourselves, myself included, to look at the long term, to really think about what is it that's going to matter, um, not only in 20 or 30 or 40 years, but really uh, beyond uh, beyond, you know, the next 100 years, what is it that will live on once I'm gone from this earth 
and what we'll live on in my future generations. And for each of us, whether that's having children of our own or investing in others, we each have the opportunity to shape the future by um, investing in others and investing in things that are eternal, which um, as a believer, I believe is God's word as well as the human soul. So it's investing in people and and knowing God's word. Yeah. yeah. In Only One Life, uh, you have a series of uh, expressions of legacy, and each uh, chapter features at least three women that fit into that category, the legacy of courage, the legacy of generosity, of boldness or tenacity, of the legacy of faith. Talk a little bit about how the book is structured and these various expressions of legacy that women are uniquely poised uh, to leave behind. Yeah, so my mom and I, um, we were we got to meet so many amazing women as we were traveling around sharing about Museum of the Bible as we were working towards the opening. And we just saw the incredible impact that women have um, both in their communities and in shaping legacy. And so we wanted to just celebrate and highlight women that have done um, incredible work in different areas of shaping a legacy. So each chapter, we chose 12 different kind of character traits, you might say, and highlighted a woman from the Bible, a woman from history, and then a woman today who live out that trait and give us a beautiful example of what it looks like to be um, a woman that is shaping a legacy in a particular area. So uh, we, we were so um, encouraged by these women because we saw their own stories and ways that they connected to ours and inspired and encouraged us. And we hope that that's what the readers will gain as well. It's just an encouragement and inspiration to go out and shape their own legacy. I think for many many of us, as we uh, read the the stories of other women who have left an incredible legacy, sometimes through tremendous hardship, sometimes requiring a great deal of courage, it's difficult to imagine that our insignificant, our seemingly insignificant, mundane, routine life has the capacity to leave something that lasts. Can you address that tendency that many of us have to underestimate our own value and uh, the 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 opportunities that we may have to leave a legacy that that will last for generations. Yes, that's so important. I, I In my own life, I see my tendency towards thinking that I have to do something really big or significant mm-hmm. or be on a stage or have something named, a building named after me to leave a legacy. Um, but every time that I'm faced with kind of that um, fear that that's what it takes and thinking, you know, I'll never be able to, you know, live up to that. I'm reminded of my great-grandmother, Marie Green. So this is my grandfather, David Green's mother. My grandfather is the founder of Hobby Lobby. And his mom, Marie Green, was a pastor's wife and raised six children. And all six of her children went into ministry, uh, either working in a church or married to a pastor, except for my grandpa, who founded Hobby Lobby. Um, but my grandmother, my, I mean, my great-grandmother, Marie, was just an incredible example of shaping a legacy that is still impacting the world today through the the values that she instilled in her children. All of them had a strong faith and a hard work ethic and saw the importance of generosity and living in light of this eternal perspective. And so her legacy is something that is living on. And she was never someone who wrote a book or stood on a stage, but she was faithful with what exactly what God gave her. And that's a powerful legacy. And we each have the opportunity to shape a legacy like that. You profile 36 women throughout the book who have and are leaving an eternal legacy. What do all women have in common with these world changers that I think will help us to recognize the value of the life God has given us and the capacity for legacy? Yeah, the, whenever we were writing about uh, each of these women, 
we loved that the, they had such different backgrounds. There was a variety of ages. Some were single, some were married, some had children, some never had children. Um, it was a very diverse group of women. But the thing they all had in common was this commitment to a deep faith, and they walked in that faith every day. So many of them, I, you know, I imagine sitting down with some of them having coffee um, and asking them what they would have expected for their lives. And many of them, I don't believe, would have said they felt equipped for what came their way, but they trusted in God and, and walked with Him each step of the way. And that was such an encouragement, was to just see these women who stumbled along the way of, um, you know, finding their footing in God's plan for their life and, and allowing Him to guide them in that and just being faithful to Him in obedience. And that's something that we each can do every day. So we don't have to have it all figured out to take that first step of obedience and walking in faith and shaping a legacy. Um, But it's kind of that daily obedience and seeking after God's plan that these women in their own lives uh, exhibited. And that's something that I can apply every day to my own life. Yeah. Now you write that busyness is often the enemy of legacy, and that is such a wise observation. How can we fight back against the enemy of busyness? Because that is sort of the the trend is to be busy and have a lot of things on our plate. (laughs) Yes, there are so many things that are vying for our time and so many good things, too. Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah, fighting against the busyness means being willing to say no to some good things in order to say yes to the best things, um, the things that are most important. So um, I recently heard someone describe it as being willing to drop the ball on some things because somewhat, you know, those aren't the most important things. So whenever um, my, you know, my mom talks about she is the only one that can be the mother to her six children, um, whereas someone else can do some of the other tasks. Someone can go speak at a certain event or some of these things that might take her away from doing the most important things, even though they would be good things. Um, so it's, it's figuring out the balance to navigate um, when to say no, when to say yes, and investing in the right and the best things and, and trying to keep our schedules focused instead of just saying yes to everything. And then in the midst of the busyness, we lose sight of what we're really trying to do. Yeah, that is so wise. And, you know, life comes in seasons. There may be a season when speaking opportunities are the best thing, but to recognize that, that busyness can rob us of investing in the best things at any given uh, point is, is such a wise thing to consider. And w- I think for women, we often feel guilty when we say no, that we have an obligation to always say yes to what we're asked to do. And yet that can right. be a destroyer, as you point out, of legacy. Right. Yeah, I think that that's such a good point, because I, I especially I think in a faith uh, culture, um, for people that are raised kind of around the church, we feel like we have to say yes to everything. And that that's what it means to be a nice person and to serve others. And and we do have to realize that it's okay and it's good to have healthy boundaries um, and, and that that helps us to be the best that we can for the things that we are called to invest in most uh, significantly. So we have to be sure that we're guarding our own schedules and our own um, opportunities of what we're saying yes to in order to be the best at what we are committing to and be really invested there. We're going to continue our conversation, but I do need to take a quick break. We're talking once again with Lauren Green McAfee. She's the co-author of Only One Life, How a Woman's Every Day Shapes an Eternal Legacy. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and we're continuing a conversation with Lauren Green McAfee. She's the co-author of Only One Life, How a Woman's Every Day Shapes an Eternal Legacy, and what a difference we can make if we are intentional. Now, let's talk about uh, some of the women that you profile who left and are leaving legacies of courage. Highlight a few of them for us. Yeah, so some of the uh, favorites that I have are in the chapter. I I love the chapter. It talks about a woman named Elizabeth Ann Everett. She talks about a faith that um, impacted the world, but we will not realize her impact. So Elizabeth Ann Everett was the nanny for Winston Churchill. Um, so she had a significant impact in Winston Churchill's life because his parents were not around to invest in him. His parents were alive, but they were very distant. They sent him off to boarding school. And Elizabeth Ann Everest is the one that would go visit him at school who really raised him, and he attributes his faith and his conviction to the values that she instilled in him. Um, and his, her, his impact is still, uh, we can still feel that in the world we live in today and see um, how the world would have been very different if Winston hadn't been the man that he was. And he attributes a lot of that to her legacy. And so I love, I loved her story. It just was very relatable. And she was a woman who was never married and never had children of her own, but still left an incredible impact in the world because of her faithfulness uh, in her day-to-day of just showing up and being present in Winston Churchill's life. What a great example. I mean, who thinks about the nanny of Winston Churchill? And yet he himself would point to her as having a significant impact on his life. And many of us are, you know, figuratively, we're the nannies uh, who are making that kind of an impact. But because attention isn't drawn to the work, uh, because our names aren't necessarily known, there's no notoriety associated with it, we tend to underestimate the value of, of what we're called to do. I think it's important to be reminded that God doesn't overlook that, that he is uh, fully aware of that kind of a legacy. Yes, absolutely. I'm, I'm sure there are many days when Elizabeth Ann Everest mm-hmm. was just trying to keep Winston Churchill, you know, alive and fed and, and from um, getting into too much trouble that there were frustrating days, I'm sure, because she does describe him as very rambunctious. He was a feisty um, child, but she she continued to invest even when it was hard, um, not knowing either what the legacy would be. You know, she wouldn't know that Winston Churchill would grow up to be Winston yes. Churchill, um, but she saw the value in in him and in his life um, for who he was uh, even before he was uh, Winston Churchill that we know today. So I, I just appreciate the faithfulness and the um, perspective that she did see and the the long term impact regardless of how difficult the day-to-day was when she was in the midst of it. Tell us about another of the women featured in the book. Yeah, so one of the other women that um, I just love her story is a modern-day woman, and her her name is Lauren Scruggs Kennedy. She's a friend um, who grew up in Texas and began right, um, creating a fashion blog, and she was uh, doing fashion work in New York City, and she was home visiting family over Christmas, the Christmas holiday and was in an accident where she had been in an airplane with a friend and she was getting out of the airplane and the propeller um, hit her and she lost her left eye as mm-hmm. well as her left arm. And she it took many months of recovery. Um, they didn't know what the impact of her injury would be. It um, impacted her brain. Uh, and so she had a long road to recovery. So we highlight her story in the legacy of tenacity that she showed because um, she writes about this in some of her own uh, writing, but just the, the faith that she b- had to build in herself every day whenever she was faced with this recovery. And um, she had done some modeling. And so to 
have um, just this injury and have to to face what that was going to be like and what her career was going to be like after that was difficult. But she relied on her faith, and um, now today she is giving back, and she started a foundation where she's helping other women who have gone through similar experiences and maybe have a prosthetic uh, limb to receive a prosthetic that looks like a real arm or a real leg. And so she she's just a beautiful woman who didn't give up. She had the tenacity. She kept moving forward and kept trusting in her faith in God's perfect plan, despite the the difficult circumstance she found herself in. Mm. We're talking about only one life, how a woman's every day shapes an eternal legacy. Uh, Lauren Green McAfee, along with her mother, Jackie Green, are the authors of the book. You write that faith is like a muscle that needs exercise. How can women exercise the muscle of faith in a legacy-leaving way? Yes, that is a great thing for each of us to think of every day because it does take practice. Uh, I, I think it's often easy to look at others that have had large leaps of faith and done something that we, we see as really um, just an incredible um, really way of trusting in God. But that, that practice comes in everyday small things. So it's having faith um, and trusting God with the little things, whether it's, you know, today's finances or um, for, you know, needing to find a job, trusting in God and having the faith in that. And if we feel the Spirit's prompting to have a conversation with someone or, or talk to a stranger, um, having the faith in the small things in life and what God is leading us so that whenever the big things do come our way, we, we're not uh, underprepared for taking the larger leaps of faith. So I think that it is something that's so important for us to be looking at every day in the small ways. And then um, that prepares us for later in life when we need larger, larger doses of faith. Yeah. Uh, the chapters in the book, Only One Life, include the legacy of courage, the legacy of generosity, of witness, of wisdom, and of teaching, the legacy of rescue, the legacy of compassion and boldness, tenacity, of the legacy of faith, the legacy of prayer, and the legacy of loyalty. And in each chapter, there are three examples of women uh, who have left that, uh, that kind of legacy. And I appreciate that these women are so uh, detached that we can't see ourselves in their stories, that that perhaps God is calling me to a legacy that's similar, that I don't have to have uh, some kind of special degree in order to leave uh, a value uh, behind that will have lasting uh, impact. Now, uh, what what's one of the one things that you want to um, uh, your readers uh, to take away from in terms of leaving a legacy that um, uh, that will make a difference as they read your book? Yeah, I hope that I hope that every woman and man, I hope that men read this book as well. Uh, I hope that everyone that reads this book will walk away with the realization that we've each got one life. We have this one chance and to make um, our impact and our legacy. And so to really let, take a look at your, your life and realize, you know, where is it that God has uniquely placed me, the gifts that I uniquely have, the people He's uniquely placed in my life, and how can I go about? living every day, investing in shaping a legacy, um, and that that means uh, something different for each of us, but it's focusing on the eternal thing. So looking at investing in human uh, souls um, and realizing the eternal nature of human beings, as well as understanding the importance of God's Word and investing in that. So I hope that people are encouraged to look at their own lives and shape their own legacy. Now, before you go, I just have to ask you about the Museum of the Bible that opened recently in Washington, D.C. I know that uh, your parents played a significant role in that, and you have uh, had an association with it as well. 
Yeah, so the Museum of the Bible just opened in November, so it's not quite been opened a year yet, but we've already had um, over half a million people have gone through in the first six months. It's in Washington, D.C., just a couple blocks south of the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum, so it's right there in the heart of D.C. It's an eight-story building, all dedicated to the Bible. It's, how, it's the third largest museum in Washington, D.C., and it's very uh, technologically advanced and very engaging. So we just hope to invite all people to engage in the Bible. The Bible has been um, the most read book, the most printed book, the most influential book in, in our world and even today. So we hope that people um, take the opportunity to engage in this most important book. And that, of course, will be a part of your family's legacy as well. Thank you so much for talking <laughs> with us today. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Again, my guest, Lauren Green McAfee. She's co-author of Only One Life, How a Woman's Every Day Shapes an Eternal Destiny. Just to put into perspective, she co-wrote the book with her mother, Jackie Green, who's the co-founder of the Museum of the Bible. She's a full-time homemaker. She relishes her role as wife, mother of six children, and mother-in-law, and now a a grandmother of four. She's married to uh, her husband for some 30 years. She's supporting him in his uh, role as president of Hobby Lobby and chairman of the board of the Museum of the Bible. And Lauren, her uh, their daughter, is a speaker, writer, connector, and coffee enthusiast uh, with a heart of courage. And she has served as an ambassador uh, for Hobby Lobby, a corporate ambassador. She's working on her Ph.D. in ethics and public policy. So to put that into perspective a little bit for you. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We've got news and traffic coming up next, and then we'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show brought to you in part by Zero Res. Well, the Trump administration has created a religious liberty task force. It's led by the Attorney General Jeff Sessions to further the Department of Justice work to protect and promote religious liberty as established in the Religious Liberty Memorandum and the Implementation Memorandum. That's bureaucracy for you. On the 6th of October of last year, Attorney General Sessions issued two memoranda. The first, the Memorandum to All Executive Departments and Agencies on Federal Law Protections for Religious Liberty, explained 20 key principles of religious liberty in U.S. law and provided direction to agencies in four areas. Agencies as employers, rulemaking, enforcement actions, and contracting or grant making. Well, on the same day, the Attorney General also issued a memorandum within the department's uh, instructing components on how to implement the religious liberty memorandum. Wow. Well, this um, implementation memorandum called on components to incorporate the Religious Liberty Memorandum at all aspects of the department's litigation and advice uh, to other agencies and department operations and through its own rulemaking and its interagency rule review. Well, the implementation memorandum required components to notify the associate attorney general of all issues that arise with uh, uh, which implicate the Religious Liberty Memorandum. Well, the task force will, one, facilitate the department's compliance with the memoranda, two, address novel recurring or cross-cutting issues in the department's work implicating the memoranda, and three, facilitate interagency coordination regarding the Religious Liberty Memoranda, and finally, engage in outreach to the public, religious communities, and religious liberty organizations to obtain feedback on compliance with that memorandum, as well as develop new strategies involving litigation, policy, and legislation to protect 
protect and promote religious liberty. In other words, taking an intentional approach to protecting uh, that First Amendment right. Well, Liberty Council's founder and chairman Matt Staver said the establishment of a religious liberty task force is an historic and positive step uh, to protect religious freedom and the rights of conscience. The announcement today by the Department of Justice is encouraging and the administration is to be commended for making this 180 degree turn from the past uh, administration, which used the federal government to violate religious freedom and conscience rather than protecting our first freedom. The task force sends a strong message that there is a commitment to protecting religious freedom. So we should see some impact, I would imagine, in the days ahead. Well, once more, science provides uh, bad news for global warming alarmists. U.S. CO2 levels again declined during 2017, despite overall global output again rising. Credit U.S. fracking in the natural gas boom, perhaps. But don't worry, the hysteria won't end. Well, the new report based on U.S. data shows clearly the U.S. continuing downward trend. The U.S. emitted 15.6 metric tons of CO2 per person in 1950, wrote the Daily Caller. After rising for decades, it's declined in recent Recent years for two fifteen point eight metric tons per person in twenty seventeen, the lowest measured levels in sixty seven years. End quote. Sixty seven years. Well, green groups um, and climate. Uh, concerned uh, individuals should be exulting. The U.S. has found a way to produce more GDP, making all of us better off with less energy. Well, meanwhile, Europe has imposed massive economy deadening regulations on its economies in order to reduce CO2 output. And how has that worked? Well, last year, European output of CO2 rose 1.5 percent, while U.S. output fell 0.5 percent. For the record, the disaster predicted when the president uh, left the Paris Climate Agreement and rejected draconian EPA restrictions on power plants hasn't materialized. On the contrary, the U.S. model has been shown to be superior. Well, this isn't the first time we've uh, seen the ongoing decline of U.S. CO2, and if current trends hold, it won't be the last. And to be sure, it's uh, a long-term trend. The U.S. Energy Information Administration's latest energy report notes that from 2005 to 2017, U.S. energy-related emissions of carbon dioxide plunged by 861 million metric tons a 14% drop. It's both a result of the decline due to the Great Recession and the fracking revolution. The EIA forecast expects a slight uptick over the next two years in the United States as the economy continues its Trump boom, but it will still be way below where it was 13 years ago. Well, over the same period, how did the rest of the world do? Emissions rose by 21% to 6.04 billion metric tons over the 12 years, mostly due to booming economic growth in India and China, where coal-fired energy outputs continues to expand. The truth, and it's proven by the data, the hard data, is that CO2 made in the USA will not choke the world to death or cause it to uh, massively overheat. And you can um, thank capitalism for that. Well, missing Malaysia Airlines flight MH370 was likely sheared off course deliberately deliberately by someone and flew over the southern Indian Ocean for over seven hours after communications were severed, according to a safety report into the disaster released today. The report by a 19-member international team provided no firm conclusions about what happened, and the head of the MH370 safety investigation team said that more definitive answers could come if the plane's wreckage and black boxes were found, but so far that has not been the case. The Boeing 777, carrying 239 people from Kuala Lumpur, 
Lumpur to Beijing vanished on the 8th of March in 2014 and is presumed to have uh, crashed in the far southern Indian Ocean. The report noted that it was difficult for the aircraft course change to be uh, attributed to mechanical or systems failure. It's more likely that such maneuvers are due to the systems being manipulated, the report said. Well, the report released today added that this was uh, there was significant information to determine if the aircraft broke up in the air or during impact with the ocean. The chief investigator said during a media briefing there was no evidence of abnormal behavior or stress among the two pilots um, that uh, could lead to the hijack of the plane. All the passengers were also cleared by police and had no pilot training, the investigator said. We are not of the opinion that it could have been an event committed by the pilots. We are not of the opinion it could have been an event committed by the pilots, adding that investigators were not ruling out the, any possibility since the aircraft's change of course was manually done and the systems in the plane were also manually turned off, according to Reuters. We cannot exclude that there was an unlawful interference by a third party. Now, this is something of a departure in the earlier uh, iterations of this investigation in which the ex- the thought was that one of the pilots was, in fact, depressed and responsible uh, for the, uh, the accident. Well, the chief investigator added that no group said it hijacked the plane and no ransom demands have been made, which would be up uh, to police to investigate. So they have concluded that it was manually downed. Uh, but not at all clear who was responsible ultimately for having done so. Well, there have been new revelations of Twitter and Facebook censoring that we've been following. Uh, the uh, the bias of social media giants isn't news, but here and there we do find more evidence to support the charge. Both Twitter and Facebook are themselves news this week for uh, more of the same. Actually, uh, more to the point last week, Twitter is reportedly shadow banning prominent Republicans. In this case, a shadow ban is hiding someone from autofill search lists, according to Vice News, no conservative ally to be sure. And I'm quoting Republican Party Chair Ronna McDaniel, several conservative Republicans, Republican congressmen, including Mark Meadows, Jim Jordan, Devin Nunez, Matt uh, Gates, and uh, Donald Trump Jr. spokesmen no longer appear in the auto-populated da- drop-down search box on Twitter. It's a shift uh, that diminishes their reach on the platform, and it's the same one big deployed against prominent racists to limit their visibility. The profiles continue to appear when conducting a full search, but not in the more convenient and visible drop-down bar, end quote. So is this merely an uh, innocent algorithm issue? Well, nope, Vice adds. Democrats are not being shadow banned in the same way. Well, as Twitter spokesman blamed the discrepancy not on the content of the tweets, but on account behavior. In other words, Twitter aims to crack down on troll-like behavior, which to uh, these thought police, uh, police rather, apparently means expressing conservative viewpoints. Well, Twitter's not alone. There is evidence that January's algorithm changes on Facebook's newsfeed are also reducing the visibility of an interaction with conservatives and Republicans while having far less detrimental effects on leftists and Democrats. Facebook explains the effort as being focused on emphasizing friends and family over media organizations, businesses or politicians. But uh, as we've seen, if we've uh, chosen to like a page, that means we want to see it. We don't need or want Facebook determining that uh, for us. Moreover, in order to post some political ads, Facebook now requires submitting Social Security and driver's license numbers for an individual on the account. 
Well, given the serious questions about what happens to users' data on Facebook, why would anyone submit to this kind of scrutiny? Well, the bottom line remains that social media giants consider Republicans to be racist, trolls, and conservative news organizations to be fake news, and they're doing whatever they can to silence that side of the debate. Maybe that's why Facebook stocks are dropping like a rock. Um, that's sort of a sad commentary on our day. As I mentioned on Friday of last week, Oregon state elections officials announced that Initiative Petition 1 has qualified for the statewide ballot in November. And if approved by voters, the measure will prohibit funds, uh, public funds from being used for non-medically necessary abortions. More than 10,000 volunteer petition circulators gathered those signatures for the um, initiative. And according to Ballotopia, this marks the first all-volunteer petition drive to qualify for the Oregon ballot in 18 years. So a pro... A uh, pro-life petition makes a, uh, the ballot and breaks a record. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we're going to talk with Joan Lippis. She's back in town from her home in Jerusalem. She's the founder and director of Novea. We're going to talk about what God is calling her to do right now and an opportunity for you to hear her speak. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I am so delighted that with me in studio is a longtime and very dear friend, Joan Lippis with Novea Ministries. And first of all, let me just say welcome home. It's good to have you back. Uh, it depends what home is. <laughs> <laughs> well, as far as I'm concerned, this is your home because it's with closer you, to me. With you, any place I'm with, you're there, it's home. <laughs> now, for listeners who are not familiar with you, you live uh, full time in Jerusalem. Describe a little bit of what your ministry is there. My ministry can be described in three ways. It is a witness to Israel, which is evangelism. Witness in in Israel, which is discipleship. And witness of Israel, which is to the nations. So it's those three um, pillars, if you will, because God has called the Jewish people, Isaiah 43, to be his witness of his character, his ways, the faithfulness of his word, to the Gentiles so that all the world will know him. Witness to, in, and of. Now, you are unique in that you have a Jewish background and you are not necessarily embraced uh, because of your Christian faith. <laughs> I'm trying to be diplomatic. <laughs> yeah, that's a nice diplomatic. Way <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know how unique it is. There are more of us day by day by day by day. Um, yes, there are those who, especially in Israel and my family, who reject me because of my faith, but there are others who see the light of Christ. And although, as my dad said, I love what you've become, but did it have to be him? Hmm. <laughs> so hmm. um, that's the way it is. I want to get into um, the call that God's, God has on your life right now and the message that he's given you to share. But before we do that, I wanted to ask you a couple of things. You live in Jerusalem mm-hmm. and the U.S. Embassy, at least the consulate has become the U.S. Embassy, was moved from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Your thoughts on that move and what impact it has? I mean, I know for you personally, there's an impact, but generally for the nation, how important was that move? It was very important to the nation. Um, What Georgine is referring to is it just happens to be in my neighborhood and I sit at my desk and I look up the hill and there's the embassy which means an increase of, of rent, and it means a whole lot of um, traffic problems. So <laughs> personally, I'm not so happy. Thank you, Mr. Trump. But um, it is very important to the nation because they see it. The nation sees it in two ways. Number one, we finally have a friend in the White House that will back us up whatever we do, which is creating 
a strength in Bibi that we've not seen in a long time. Now Bibi is able to say to our to our enemies, this is what we stand for, knowing that America, that Trump has his back. But it's also that is that Israel and Jerusalem is being identified as the eternal, forever, undivided capital of Israel. And that's very important. I like to point out to people, especially believers, hey, it ain't about the embassy, it's about the temple, but never mind. <laughs> you asked about the <laughs> From nation. a geopolitical <laughs> standpoint, we'll, we'll talk about that uh, just briefly. The other thing I wanted to ask you about, there's a lot of attention focused on the fact that Iran and Russia are... Um, are threatening the border of Israel, and from a, a prophetic as well as geopolitical standpoint, your thoughts on the threat they pose just by virtue of proximity? Huge, because they are coming over through Syria. And so, as you know, the other day we shot down a, a fighter, um, a Syrian fighter who invaded our airspace. So when I spoke uh, to a neighbor the other day, I said, how close are we? He said, well, it's closer and closer and closer every day. So prophetically, we know it's going to happen. There are a lot of other things that we know prophetically are going to happen. The nations, including America, will turn against Israel, but God will always be there. So as I look at the geopolitical situation, I go, yay, we're one day closer. (laughs) So um, I said to a friend the other day, you know, I'm just not Zionistic. I, I, I don't really pay too much attention to our politics. She said, no, because you're too busy looking up. Mm-hmm. You look at everything from a kingdom perspective. So as should we all. <laughs> as we should we all. Yeah, we pray for our nation. We pray for our leaders. We watch, you know, we have the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other, but our attitude has to be praise the Lord. He's coming soon. Now, what do I do about my neighbor? which is the answer to the panic that I see among many Americans uh, these days all across the country. Well, enough of that. I want to talk <laughs> I want to talk primarily about what God has called you to do right now. Uh, we see examples in Scripture where God has appointed a prophet, a leader, to do a very difficult thing. And I think we always underestimate. I've been in a position where I've been called to do a difficult thing. And until you're in the middle of it, you tend to underestimate the weight of that burden. God has called you to do something very difficult as well and has given you a message that the church needs to hear but isn't necessarily open to. Let's talk a little (laughs) bit about what what God is calling you to at this point. Georgine, God has created a one new man. That has been his desire from the beginning is to create a people called out to be the one new man through whom he would work to fill the earth with the knowledge of his glory. I don't see it. Where is the one new man? We know that the one new man is supposed to be Jews and Gentiles in Christ. We know that there's supposed to be men, there's no man or woman, slave nor free, Jew or Gentile. And yet, as I sit in front of you, we are different. Now, if your husband were here, we would have men, we would have a man, we have, would have a woman, we would have a, an African-American, we would have a Jew, we would have a Gentile. We are one in Christ relationship-wise. But identity and destiny were different. Mm-hmm. Why? Because we have different callings to be the one new man. But we have to be the one new man because we our allegiance and our alignment are with him and with each other. Well, we're not seeing that. How do I know we're not seeing it? Look at Acts 2, 41 through 47. That was, the, that was the new covenant church, the New Testament church that we're all trying to be. 
where God was adding to their numbers daily. I don't see that. Do you? No. What I discovered a year ago in a very visceral way was the impact and why of of 2,000 plus years of anti-Semitic rhetoric leading to atrocities against the Jewish people from those who called themselves Christian. Anything done or said in the name of Christ will create spiritual strongholds that will grow and grow and grow and grow and grow until they prevent the church from being who and what the church is supposed to be, and it continues to blind the Jewish people from hearing the gospel. Case in point, my friends in Israel who love Jesus, of course they call we call him Yeshua over there, but they will say to me, but don't ever, ever call me a Christian. I said, of course you're a Christian. No, we're not. There is an angst. Mm. There is a fear. There is a pain. Now, if it hurts me, imagine how it hurts the heart of God. The, the Bible says that the church was created, it was built on a foundation of the Hebrew prophets and apostles. But there was a gap in the first century. It was just a family gap, you know, Jew against Jew, the, the, the followers of Jesus against the rejectors of Jesus. And we see that when, when Paul was stoning Stephen, mm-hmm. you know, just a little family squabble. Well, in 70 AD, by now, Paul had gone to Europe, he had gone to Asia, the gospel had been preached. So they knew the word, but how much discipleship did they have? Paul was dead in 60, 67. Um, and the temple was destroyed. The Jewish people had risen up against Rome. Rome had squashed them, and the temple was destroyed. So the new, predomin- now predominantly Gentile church, are looking at this saying, something's wrong. You know, they're supposed to be the chosen people, and da 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 So they came up with explanations. Don't we all do that? <laughs> we can't figure what's in God's mind. So instead of getting it from the Bible or from him, we create our own understanding. They came up with two, two, under, two rationales. One, the Jews killed Christ. We were the, Jew, we were the Christ killers. Now, my Bible doesn't say that. Does yours? No, it does not. Who killed Christ? It was the Roman government and yeah. authorities, yes. Yeah. It was the Jews who cried for his death. The Romans did it. But Isaiah 53 says it was the God's pleasure, the Father's pleasure mm-hmm. to bruise him. Jesus did it willingly because you and I sinned. So I, we, we are not Christ killers. But the other explanation that they get is, gave was called replacement theology. And replacement theology continues to this day. Replacement theology is that God is finished with the Jews and the church has replaced him. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll continue our conversation with Joan Lippis. She is the uh, director of Novea Ministries. And we'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with Joan Lippis with Novea Ministries. You have a lot of uh, opportunities for people to follow you on Facebook and on YouTube and so on. Maybe we can uh, touch that in just a few moments. But we're talking about one of the major impediments that prevents uh, God's chosen people 
uh, the Jews from receiving the gospel of Jesus Christ and the error that the church, the Gentile church has made, and perhaps underestimating the impact that that history that continues through today has had. I think when we think about anti-Semitism, we think about the period preceding and following World War II. And we sort of assume, you know, people hate Israel, but they don't, they're not necessarily anti-Semitic. They don't hate the Jewish people. But there is a significant um, um, issue that has uh, divided uh, the Gentile believer from the Jew that needs to be addressed. And God has called you to articulate that message. Trying to articulate it. Not only so that the Jewish people hear the gospel, but that the church is all that God created her to be. We are not seeing the fullness of his blessings. We're not seeing the power of his authority in the name of Jesus. And I'm sorry, Georgine, we are working, 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 but we're not seeing a fruit equal to our efforts. We have program after program. We're not seeing numbers added to our, you know, daily. We're not seeing it. So the church is is being hindered, the Jewish people are being hindered, and God's heart must be breaking, Mm. and that's what breaks my heart. I want to see this breach repaired. What started out as a gap between, you know, Jews against Jews became a crack. We see this in Acts 15, when you have, you know, the, the, the Christians, the Gentiles, turning against the Jews because of this replacement theology. But in the fourth century, with Constantine, it became a breach. When Constantine opened up the church, I'm using my air quotations, <laughs> um, to anyone, regardless of their faith. So no longer is it the, the called out, the redeemed by God's grace, by faith in Yeshua, it became come one and come all, which completely changed the, the church, separated itself from, from the biblical and historical roots. And that's from that point on, it was, a, it was a done deal. And we have been called to be repairers of the breach, Isaiah 58, 2. And that is what gets me exciting. When I go through this horrible history and I feel so dirty and I feel so ugly, I go, but wait, 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 wait. The good news is we have the power to repair the breach very simply. We do it in, in our counseling all the time. We do it when we're, when we're doing um, deliverance. We recognize the lie. We recognize it's a problem. We recognize the lie. We renounce the lie in the name of Jesus. We break its power and effect, and we replace it with the truth. How simple is that? But the problem is we don't know what the lies are. Mm -hmm. And because we're believers and we know what God has done in our hearts, we like to see the best of people. Of course we want to see the best of people. But the worst of people have created the damage. You know, when we look at at, at the things that our church fathers have said, what I get is, ah, that was just the, the, the society of the time. Well, it may be, but those words are in the spiritual realm. Martin Luther was the explanation for what Hitler did in World War II. So when the Nazis went into Nuremberg and they said, how could you do this? They said, what are you yelling at us for? We just did what Martin Luther told us to do. That breaks your heart. And let me ask you, because I I can guarantee you there are listeners who are doing precisely what you described a moment ago. That is an historic fact. The church was in error at that point. It doesn't have anything to do with me. I'm not an anti-Semite. What do you say to those t- who don't 
see this as something that we in the 21st century uh, take responsibility for or can somehow fix? Why is this important for us today? As I said before, it's important because the church is being hindered by this breach. The church that you belong to, the church that you are working with and praying for is being hindered by this very simple problem. We also see the biblical example of what they call identification repentance. Daniel was a righteous man. Daniel 9. He saw the time had come that God was going to start moving the Jews back into Jerusalem, and he knew the time had come to repent. He was a righteous man, but he took upon himself the the form of an intercessor to intercede and repent for the sins of his people. And there is somebody called Jesus who died on the cross (laughs) as an intercessor for us. He said he became sin. It wasn't just that he carried our sins. He became sins that we might be forgiven. And so, sure, you didn't do it. I didn't do it. But in the name of Christ, it was done. And we have the privilege and the responsibility and the power, hallelujah, to break the damage that has been done. Now, for our listeners, um, what you've just described uh, they may see something may resonate resonate rather in their spirit. This is something I want to be a participant of, but I don't know much about what Joan that history that Joan is making reference to. And I want to talk a little bit about one of the things that you're doing now, so that this message in its entirety, and as you've mentioned to me, uh, this is about a six hour message that we're you know just making slight reference to. But you're presenting a you're providing a resource. You're working on that even while you're here that can help us understand the entire message, and then to respond in a way that's Christ-honoring. Talk about what you're doing now, or at least one of the things that you're doing now for that We're purpose. We're going to film it in tiny little sections instead of sitting there for an hour and going crazy. We're doing 15-minute little segments. And for those people who are able to come, we're filming at U.S. Digital. That's a good plug for them, which is 1400 Northeast, 136th Avenue in Vancouver. Vancouver, Washington. So we're going to go in on two days and we're going to film these in short little sections for people who are there. There's plenty of time to to do discussion, to do because there's lots of questions and answers. Mm -hmm. It will all go up on YouTube and then write to me, correspond with me. I'm not sure what the next step will be. I may put them out as DVDs. I may put together a workshop uh, or a workbook. We're not sure. The first thing is get this stuff up and onto YouTube, then I have the freedom to have invitations. I I just did, while I was here, I did two um, uh, Sunday school classes, you know, because I can say, go look at that, the the videos, and I can do a two-hour session or a a one-hour session, and that makes it easy for everybody. Now, um, dream with me what the church would look like if we (laughs) understood this message, if we responded in a biblical way and we saw that restoration of what Christ intended, this one new man that includes Jewish and Gentile believers of every stripe reflecting his glory. It would be fun. Everybody asked me that question. And Georgina, I don't know. All I can tell you is it would look like Christ. Mm -hmm. Our identity would be in Christ. And so, sure, somebody may do want to do a Passover and somebody want, may want to do something else and somebody else may want to do Christmas. That's fine. 
as long as our traditions are biblical and they're not isolation. I am tired of hearing Gentile Christians, Gentile believers, walking into a Messianic congregation and say, I feel like a second-class citizen. Or Jewish believers walking into a predominantly Gentile church and feel, say, I feel so uncomfortable. I don't belong here. People are searching for something. What they're searching for is a renewal of a biblical and historical understanding of the Bible. I don't want to hear about a messianic Bible study. There shouldn't be those words. It's a Bible study that looks at the context, the biblical and historical context of the word. It shouldn't be an allegorization. It shouldn't be a spiritualization. It should be the beauty and the clarity of the word. And what it would look like, all I can tell you, it would be fun and it would look like Christ. (laughs) You know, when Jesus is praying in John and he talks about uh, a unified uh, body of believers and and the impact that would have on the world, one wonders... um, if we are faithful to what he taught us, if we are men and women of faith and in his word, and we are willing to jettison the labels we place upon ourselves, sort of hyphenated Christians, what that might look like and the impact that would have on the world. Because Jesus himself said that that would be the most impressive thing. The way we love one another would be the most impressive thing that the world um, would see in us that would lead them ultimately to him. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. I love that. We see that there is a, a... a line. First, it starts with relationship, that we are created in his image. We are, and then it goes to identity. We are his workmanship. Then it goes to destiny, created for good works. When our relationship with Christ is not preeminent, we will try to get our identity from our destiny. What do we do determines who we are, or this is who I am got to get our relationship with Christ, number one, Mm -hmm. because then our identity flows. There is a unique identity in Christ with the Jews and the Gentiles, but together we're like pistons that work in harmony to keep the engine going. I am a Jew, you're a Gentile. I brought Christ to you, you bring Christ back to me, and we, we go together, together, together. And nobody can tell the difference between us because we basically have the same message. My message goes back to Abraham, the the coming out of Egypt. Your message starts with Jesus. But we both end at the same place, at his throne, saying, holy, holy, holy. Yes. Now, once again, I want to uh, mention to our listeners, if you would like to uh, participate in the recording that you're going to be doing, that's on Wednesday and Thursday. Um, U.S. Digital has consented to allow you to use their facility at 1400 Northeast 136th Avenue in Vancouver. On Wednesday, that recording will take place at 1230 and then on Thursday at 830. And you are welcome to come and participate. I I imagine you'd like to know who's coming. So what's the best way for them to email me at Novea, N as in Nancy, O-V as in Victor, E-A, at Novea.org. Novea at Novea.org. And that's my website where you can find the rest of me, Novea.org. <laughs> and I would encourage uh, folks to do that. 
please keep me um, informed about when this is uh, completed and when it's going to be available, and I'll make sure our listeners know Thank that you. as well. It'll probably be in bits and pieces, yeah, which is fine. over time, yeah. Um, we're gonna we're just about out of time. How can we pray for you? I know when you travel from your home in Jerusalem back to Portland, which I also consider your home, it's at considerable cost to you financially as well as physically. Uh, uh, how can we pray for you and support your ministry? Well, definitely financial. Um, um, we've been taking a big hit. But also, as you said in the beginning, this is such a heavy burden. I have never been hit the way I am. I mean, mm-hmm. stupid things, stupid, stupid things. So that I would be protected, that I would keep my eyes fixed and focused on Jesus, that I would speak what needs to be spoken and not be afraid of the ramifications, not in the spiritual realm or even among my friends and my colleagues who are may not be real happy. Mm-hmm. Again, Novea at Novea. Dot org for more information. Joan Lippis, thank you so much. Always a joy. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Appreciate you. you. <laughs> We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back to wrap things up. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, I hope on this Monday that you fared well on Sunday, which was the hottest day we've seen in a while. But the number of 90 degree days here in Portland is apparently trending up. July has uh, had a, a record that depending on what the high of uh, today is, uh, could bring a new record um, this by this afternoon. Well, the average for Portland is 11 days of 90-degree heat each year. That's the average. Since the year 2000, the annual number has jumped to 15 days, and since 2014, the average is 22 days. Well, Portland's latest July heat wave uh, will likely lead to an, uh, an all-time record as of this afternoon. Portland is expected to reach 90 degrees for the 15th day of this month, and that's just in the month. The previous record for the month of July was set in 2009. That was 14 days, so today we'll very likely um, see that record fall. Another record also set in 2009 could not, uh, rather could be matched on Tuesday if the temperature hits 90 degrees at Portland International Airport on both Monday and Tuesday afternoon, which is expected. It's going to match the longest stretch of consecutive days of 90 degree temperatures in our recent history. Now with Portland likely to reach its 20th 90 degree, uh, degree day of the year on Monday afternoon, it's drawing attention to a, a, a recent upward tick in 90 degree days in general. The Average for Portland is 11 uh, um, each year, but if you begin the average in the year 2000, the annual number jumps to 15 days. And over the last five years, since 2014, Portland is averaging a whopping 22 days of 90 degree temperatures. I think we're getting pretty good at it, actually. Weather cycles come and go, but it's um, it's impressive to note that many of Portland's hot weather records for the duration of heat and the number of hot days have been set since the year 2000. Portland last summer with a below normal amount of hot days, was back in uh, 2013 with 10 days. The all-time record for 90-degree days is 29, and that was set in 2015. And by the way, taking a look at the forecast for the next several days, uh, 93 is expected the high today, 90 on Tuesday, which would in fact set a new record on Wednesday, 85, 77 degrees on Thursday, again on Friday, and then 82 degrees on Saturday, 76 degrees on Sunday. So we are trending downward, which I don't think most of us will be complaining about. It'll be kind of nice to have 
I don't know, mid 80 degree temperatures. Well, if you um, if you can't take a vacation to escape the ODOT construction projects, here's some things you need to know. Portland's construction induced traffic nightmares have begun. Many of you know that already. Several Oregon Department of Transportation projects are uh, tying up freeways in Portland this summer. Travelers are going to experience the worst construction delays they've seen in the past 10 years in Portland. And that, according to Kimberly Dinwiddle, she is the or rather Dinwiddie, the uh, Oregon Department of Transportation spokeswoman. The worst traffic jams are happening thanks to an Interstate 5 paving project and an I-5 to I-84 ramp project. And that's bringing roads uh, and ramp closures for several weeks starting um, that started rather on the 8th of July uh, to the busiest freeway interchange in the state. So it's an unfortunate combination. The traffic um, Carmageddon, as it's been labeled, is so bad that ODOT on its website suggested people walk or bike to work, use public transportation, work from home, or even take a vacation instead of trying to deal with the road tie-up. So if you can take a six-week vacation, good for you. If you don't have that option, um, then here's some of the things you need to know. The Department of Transportation is fixing issues on three bridges that connect Interstate 84 and Interstate 5. Closures started on the uh, bridge, uh, bridges rather, on the 8th of July. The project will cost about $6.75 million. Um, I-84 westbound to I-5 northbound, that ramp closed on the 25th of this month at 10 p.m. and that will continue through August the 6th 5 a.m. Also, I-84 westbound to westbound rather to I-5 southbound. That ramp uh, has been closed to August 17th, or I should say, will be closed August 17th at 10 p.m. to August 27th at 5 a.m. So we have more closures to come. Uh, also. Um, the Oregon Department of Transportation is paving six miles of I-5 between the Moda Center and the Interstate Bridge on the Oregon-Washington border. Drivers are going to see ramp closures, uh, detours between the Fremont and Markham bridges. The project will cost about uh, $17 million. I-5 northbound between Fremont and Markham Bridge, that's going to be closed the 27th at 10 p.m. through the 30th. That's today, 5 a.m. And again, August the 3rd. Uh, 10 p.m. through August the 6th. And I-205 in southeast Portland, night and weekend lane closures are expected in the days ahead. This is a nine-mile stretch of the I-205 paving project that first started in 2017. It's going to continue into late 2019. Crews are paving the area between Johnson Creek Boulevard and the Glen Jackson Bridge. That's going to add three auxiliary lanes, real-time traffic signs, and easier access to a multi-use a path on Gleason Street, but that's in the future. Uh, that uh, project, it's it's projected to be completed by um, the fall of this uh, this year. What's closed this summer? The northbound exit to, to U.S. 30 bypass Killingsworth Street. That's going to be closed for two weeks. Exact dates haven't yet been set. Single lane closures are also happening on weekends from 8, 8, 8 p.m. to 5.30 um, uh, p.m. on Fridays uh, from 8 p.m. to 8 a.m. and it goes on from there. Um, also, nighttime lane closure starting at 8 p.m. Two weekend closures in the Lower Boone's Ferry Road southbound on ramp, uh, and one weekend closure at the northbound off ramp, and it goes on and on from there. By the way, if you want to look up all of this stuff, you can go to BigFixPDX.com. BigFixPDX, so that you can try to avoid some of these shutdowns as they come and go. Some of the times. A change from evening to day and day to day. So keep that in mind. Also, I want to remind you that Decision America Pacific Northwest Tour with Franklin Graham, that is coming up. They started um, 
or rather they started in other places around the country. But on the 1st of August, um, Billy Graham, uh, his son Franklin, will be in uh, Medford. Uh, then he's going to make his way to Bend. But on August the 5th, um, uh, Franklin Graham will be at the Clackamas County Fairgrounds and Events Center in Canby. And then on the 7th, we'll be at the Tri-Cities Washington Columbia Point Marina Park in Richland. On the 9th in Spokane, Washington. The 12th in Tacoma. The 13th, Monroe, Washington. This is an opportunity for people to invite friends, neighbors, loved ones to this decision. America Pacific Northwest Tour. Uh, Franklin Graham is uh, joining believers all across the country. And this is the Pacific Northwest version of Uh, this tour that's been ongoing. Taking a quick look at uh, what's coming up the remainder of the week, Daniel Henderson, Transforming Presence is the title of the book we'll talk about, How the Holy Spirit Changes Everything from the Inside Out. And then on Thursday, Linda Evans will be our guest, Praying God's Promises, the Life-Changing Power of Praying the Scriptures. Want to thank James Blend for engineering and producing today's program, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.